You've got Ted Corliss with the Corliss Barfield Trout Group coming to you from Boulder, Colorado and Tampa, Florida at the same time. Today's date is June 19th, 2020, and we're here to celebrate the elimination of slavery as of Juneteenth. That's what we call today. Very important day in our history, and we're going to honor that by addressing many of the issues that are currently in our windshield as a community, both in Tampa, Boulder, and throughout the United States. I'd like to introduce my law partner, Mr. John Mulvihill. How are you today, John? I'm great. How are you today, Ted? I'm fantastic. Uh, we have the opportunity to ask some of these questions of John as a former prosecutor. Things like, what role has the chokehold had in law enforcement over these past few decades? Have you heard of a no-knock warrant? What is it, and why would law enforcement be using it when it results many times in horrible tragedies? Let's address some of these issues that, so that we can help the people in our community make educated choices and give them an opportunity to have an intelligent conversation with other people around them with the information that we provide to them. What's going on in the Tampa Bay community on these particular issues? Well, actively, what I've been seeing around the Tampa St. Pete community is a lot of activism in the uh, forms of protests and outreach and trying to bring attention to the issues of systemic racism and then also how it applies to law enforcement and the law enforcement practices throughout, I don't think just the Tampa area. I think it's the whole point is the nationwide movement to bring attention throughout the entire nation. Uh, you know, as we prepared for this podcast, John, I did a lot of research on many of these issues like chokeholds or no-knock warrants or just some of these institutionalized methods. Uh, and it, it, I think the important thing that I want to offer to people who are listening to this is that we're not going to give you our opinions of these individual elements. We're going to give you the information that's been gathered by credible sources about how regularly these things are happening and how often they end in tragedy. And I think that if we look at some of this information, it might provide an impetus for legislators or for people to call uh, for for change. And I, I, I'm, spoiler alert, we strongly support the mood to work collectively to reduce institutionalized racism. And we're talking about a good example of that is what the New York state of New York used to call the stop and frisk rule. Can you tell us what the stop and frisk rule was, John? I mean, it was the stop and frisk was an opportunity to stop people and pat them down or frisk them. Um, the problem that developed with stop and frisk is it was predominantly used against the African-American community. I would say disproportionately used against the African-American community. So it's no longer in practice in New York City. And it's also been, I don't want to say proven, but it has, uh, the statistics show that it was used in disproportionate manners in response to the African-American community versus any other community in the New York City area. So And so... so so if I'm walking down the street and I'm a middle-aged white guy and a police officer were to stop and frisk me, what would happen to me? Well, they would pat you down, you know, ultimately question you, stop you. I mean, it would be considered a stop. They're, so they're trying to get into a gray area of the, the Constitution and what is a legal stop versus what is an illegal stop. So 
to, to break it down into what would happen to you, you'd be stopped, you'd be questioned, and you'd be probably patted down for weapons, paraf drugs, paraphernalia, things along those lines. Um, so that in and of itself is illegal. You're not, in my opinion, I would say, obviously there's arguments in that New York City, when they were using it, was arguing that it was a legal stop and they had a basis for that stop. But in my opinion, um, you have to have probable cause to be able to search someone's person or pat them down or to stop and question them about what they're doing. You have a constitutional right to unlawful searches and seizures, or I should say to not be subjected to unlawful searches and seizures. And that is brushing so up against the line of what is considered constitutional and what is not that. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, to me, it almost seems as though it, it, it creates images of Eastern Europe during the Cold War, where you're if you ever were in certain parts of Europe, police officers, law enforcement, military officials could walk up on your person and demand to search your purse your briefcase, yourself, and you had to produce proof of citizenship. And if you didn't have that, you probably would end up in a cage. And that that's what that sounds like to me. Uh, because... Uh. I think it's a slippery slope, you know, you, you, when it's okay to stop someone for an, what I would consider an unconstitutional reason, where does that stop? You know, they, they have a saying in the, the criminal world, no matter how heinous an individual may be considered, they have the same constitutional rights as everyone else in this country. And if you don't protect the worst of the worst, you're not protecting the best of the best. So ultimately, you have to look out for all members of society and all members have these same equal protections under the law, regardless of their, their race, their sex, their gender identity, anything you are provided the same constitutional rights as anyone else. You are born with those rights. If you're born in the United States, you are born with those rights, regardless of your, like I said, your race. It doesn't matter. It, that should not matter. But you start allowing people to get stopped, and you profile people for reasons, whether it's because of the color of their skin or the situation that they're in or the neighborhood they're in and things like that. Where does it stop? The question is, where does that stop? And you know, that is, I think, goes to that statement that it reminds you of Eastern European rule and, the, the you know, ultimately under the communist dictatorship and being stopped and questioned and having your, your rights constantly violated. I mean, Americans would find that offensive if they had to participate in those types of things and had to be subjected to those types of things as they should be. Well, it, it, it also, again, to this issue of how so much racism can be baked into the process uh, if you take racial profiling and you mix it with stop and frisk you have institutional racism i mean if you look for example i read this morning that a study just recently came out of my home state of missouri that missouri black drivers were 91 percent more likely to be stopped just to check uh, license and registration and again, you, you use the example PC, probable cause. And, uh, and uh, for those of lis listeners that may not know what probable cause is, what, what is probable cause? What does that mean? It means that there's a probable basis for a stop, that there's some sort of violation or, or crime being committed. I mean, a good example would be a traffic violation. If, someone's vi if a, an officer sees someone commit a traffic violation, they have to be able to substantiate that and have cause for that stop. So like use speeding as an example, they have a radar and they're able to see that if the posted speed limit's 55 and you're going 70, 
they're able to see through that radar that you are violating that traffic infra or that traffic law, which in turn gives them probable cause to stop you. And now that's a very simplified uh, explanation of it, but it's basically that there is a basis that there is some cause showing that this individual is either violating the law or committing some sort of crime um, and that you have a basis to stop them. And uh, to tie into your point about the data in Missouri, when I was a prosecutor, the, the defense bar and the public defenders, they had a, a, a term they would use. And it's really kind of just sad that it would be, it's bantered around. And it's not bantered around in a joking manner. It's bantered around in a highly offended manner that this should not happen is that, you know, why did this person get stopped? Well, they got stopped for a, a DWB, which stands for a driving while black. There were so many instances where there's such a thin basis for a stop of an African-American male driving a motor vehicle and they would get stopped. I mean, and it comes down to it's hard to prove that there was an unconstitutional basis because if there's you would get into these situations where it was he said, she said. The driver of the vehicle, who's the one that's being investigated, is saying, I didn't roll through that stop sign, or I didn't run a red light, I didn't do this. And then the officer is saying, I observed them do that. So that becomes a very difficult proposition to rebut if you're a criminal defense attorney, because you then have to somehow gather data and prove that this officer either has a history of providing false testimony or find something to show that this this officer was not telling the truth while they're on the stand. And I'm not saying that all officers do this. By no means am I saying that all officers do this. But unfortunately, there are ones that do. And that becomes a very difficult proposition as a defense attorney if you have a client that's saying, look, I did nothing wrong. I just got stopped for basically being black. And then ultimately trying to impeach what we call question a officer on the stand on why the basis of their stop was wrong. So we can use the example I used to see people get stopped for what they would call failing to come to a complete stop at the stop sign, which is basically a California stop. You, people have heard that or a roll through the stop <laughs> sign. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. officers would pull disproportionate amounts of African-American men over for this failing to come to a complete stop at a stop sign. Well, if you're this African-American man and you are of the position that you came to a complete stop at a stop sign, how do you prove that you did it? it you know, you don't have video of it. You don't have yeah. witnesses of it. It's X officer versus you. And that becomes a difficult proposition. And these are the things where institutional racism can get hidden or be placed and be used and continue to cause problems throughout the community. Now, I'm not saying that all officers are stopping people for illegal reasons. That is absolutely not the case. Yeah. But right. there, there right. are cases where this happens and it happens much more free in, in a perfect world. It should never happen. That should never happen, but it does. And, right. And that's a, a good example. And those things happen all the time. And, and that is was always a, a proposition as a prosecutor, because you would try to investigate a case in a proverbial vacuum if you could. You tried to not let race or uh, things like that come in. I shouldn't even say try. You, you would 
you were implored and you're not supposed to allow race come into your investigation. Um, but then you're looking at a stop like that. And on paper, it's a it's a quote unquote legal stop. But then if you take race into it, was it a legal stop or was it not? Do you know this officer personally when you were investigating it? Do they have a history of making stops like this on a regular basis? So you 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 have to look at it. And sometimes it's you can't look at things in a vacuum. You have to look at the the totality of the circumstances of what's going on and make a, a, a judgment and a situation call on whether or not you should be filing charges or whether or not someone's constitutional rights were violated. Therefore, you can't bring this charge that they were charged with. So those are kind of examples of the, the Missouri data that I saw in play. And I'm even though I haven't been at the prosecutor's office for, for several years, I still have friends that are uh, work in the criminal defense world and the criminal law world. And these the things unfortunately still happen. Well, if you look at again back on Missouri, we're really picking on the show me state today, but the data shows that it was so bad in 2017 that the NAACP actually issued a travel advisory warning people that traveling in Missouri uh, was not necessarily safe from a civil rights perspective given the number of people of color that were in fact being pulled over. Uh, again, picking on a couple of the individual communities, and I have friends in all of these communities, St. Louis, it was 80% more likely to, to stop black drivers as compared to white drivers when you, when you, measured, you, you, you know, measure for everything else. Or in uh, Kansas City, uh, 87%, uh, this is from the 20, 87% uh, of the people are white, but a black person was 275%. 275% more likely to be stopped. And so what role do you think uh, body cameras could have in avoiding these kinds of situations? Do you think body cameras are a good idea? I do. I think they should be ultimately embraced by everyone, both law enforcement and by the, the public as a whole. I, I mean, ultimately, if you feel that your constitutional rights were violated and we'll go back to the example of you know you think you were stopped illegally well the camera should have footage of that and it will either back up your position that you were stopped illegally or it will back up the cops position that they they had a legal basis for your stop i think it's a win-win for everyone and i also think if they're you know individuals in law enforcement that um do use excessive force or are disproportionately stopping African-Americans versus any other race. I think that collects the data. I also think it keeps in the back of their mind as a law enforcement officer that I'm being recorded and I need to make sure that I am complying with the law because just because you're a law enforcement officer doesn't mean you have to com you don't comply with the same laws that everybody else has to comply with. Um, and I also think it helps the law enforcement officers, too, though, because if you have an allegation of misconduct or aggressive behavior or excessive use of force, and those are false accusations, you have camera footage to back up your actions. So I think it's, a, in, in my opinion, I think body cameras are a win-win for both the public as a whole and for law enforcement. And I think you're seeing that law enforcement is coming around to that. I mean, they're being embraced by many of the law enforcement agencies throughout the United States. So, and it sheds a lot of light onto what has happened and what's going on on a day-to-day -day basis. And if there is a complaint, you can mine that, that video camera and go look at what it actually captured and see what it shows.
And I, I, I think that's a good thing. I, I had a, 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 this was a guy that I went to law school with, not a, not a friend of mine. Uh, I, I, you know, we were cordial, but he had, um, he was black and he was pulled over. Oh no, he wasn't pulled over. What had happened was he got in a cab and he, Hey, take me to wherever. And so I guess he was driving him home. And when he got home, he just decided not to pay the cab driver. So he just hops out of the cab, runs in and says, have a nice day. Well, the cab driver didn't appreciate that too much. And so he decided to call the police. So a squad car shows up, they knock on the door and they put him in cuffs. And so the idea was he's waiting, but he's trying to provoke some kind of violent reaction. He wants the police to assault him. And so he's, he realizes that one of the officer's last name appears, in his opinion, to be Jewish. And I don't know if it was right or not. I don't remember it. But he begins making anti-Semitic comments to the cop again. And you can tell, and I say you can tell because what Genius didn't realize was that there was a squad cam that was picking up all of the audio and all of the video as he's doing this. And the police officers are trying not to laugh because they realized they knew exactly what he was doing. And he didn't realize that he was on camera. I am with you. I believe that cameras are not intrusive. I think they are, especially in state of the art, they can be as small as your pinky. And they can capture 180 degrees at 4K. And you're, you're, you know, my, my 11-year-old could work the equipment and edit the video. So I, I think that it's this idea that uh, it's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's clarity. It's transparency. That's the word I'm looking for. And so if there's a question about the individual issue, then I, and I also want to say, I, you know, I think everybody feels as though they're obligated to make a comment about not all police officers are bad. Of course, that's true. But the problem is, given the total number of police officers are on that are on the streets, and they are on the streets for multiple reasons. They're there to protect, but they're also there to establish an ethos. Um, and that if you give police officers clarity in what their rights are as, you know, within their responsibilities, the things they can do, the things they can't do, if you make those very clear, then I believe that's what you're going to find. Police officers will comply. So Brianna Taylor and her boyfriend were in her apartment on March 13th, and the police officers were able to obtain what is referred to as a no-knock warrant. What is that? Well, the idea is that in 1986, Congress passed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act. So a lot of this has to do with the war on drugs. And in 1986, we would have been in the middle of an epidemic associated with crack cocaine in predominantly urban areas. Yes, in areas that were predominantly African-American. So it, the act, the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, created mandatory minimum sentences for those particular offenses but it provided for what is referred to as a quick-knock approach to entering a location. Now, why would a police officer need that? Well, it's pretty simple. Uh, if you're in a, in a house and someone knocks on the door and says, Hey, it's the police. Can we come in? And you have an ounce of crack cocaine. 
uh, probably not going to be good enough for you to put that under your pillow because they're going to rip the whole place apart looking for the drugs. Or if they have drug dogs, the dogs are going to find them before anybody. Well, you run in, of course, and you flush them. So the idea here was that the quick knock approach was to preserve uh, evidence, to avoid the destruction of evidence. But the problem with that is that the numbers got a little crazy in terms of how often these no-knock warrants were being used. The idea was they should only be used in situations where they had some sense of the strength of their case, that there was, in fact, drug activity going on inside, but also that they believed that these individuals were going to be able to gain access uh, to destruction of evidence. So I guess in 2014, the ACLU reported that there were 800 SWAT deployments involving no-knock or quick-knock entries. And two out of every three of those were drug searches. And only half of those ever found evidence of, of drugs. But, of course, we know what happened to Breonna Taylor. The particular location that they were searching was the wrong location, and the individual they were looking for was not there. Uh, in fact, they knew where he was. The police officers didn't know, but he was in jail, uh, probably for selling drugs. So you're talking about police officers, SWAT teams, two o'clock in the morning, they're amped up, they bang on the door, or they don't, or they just ram the door through, and here they are. Well, in Breonna Taylor's situation, her boyfriend did what I would have done as a concealed weapon permit owner, as an individual who owns firearms, who would protect his family with his own life or firearms. He picked up his gun and started shooting. So he ends up shooting one of the police officers in the leg, which he then gets, at least for a short period of time, accused of attempted murder of a law enforcement officer, which would have put him in jail pretty much forever. And, of course, once he fires the first shot, the officers that executed the warrant, the no-knock warrant, started firing back, and they actually discharged their weapons 20 times. And eight of those bullets ended up going into Brianna Taylor, 26-year-old. Uh, I think she was an emergency medical technician at the time. And so she was uh, killed at the scene. So what's the data say about this? Uh, how often are these no-knock warrants being used? Well, in the early 80s, you know, when they, when they were introduced, no-knock warrants occurred about 1,500 times. And that seems, if you look in the overall scheme of things, not that many if you think about the number of times that a police officer would break the threshold of the door looking for drugs. But apparently it got a little out of control because by 2000, there were 40,000, that's 40,000 times per year, that's in 2000, that they were using no-knock warrants. And by 2010, that number reached somewhere between 60 and 70,000 times. And so it almost seems to me that the exception, which was the no-knock warrant, is now becoming the rule. Now, I have to mention this because my, my public statements about the legalization of cannabis, I am a person who promotes the idea of the modernization of America's cannabis laws by decriminalizing, medicalizing, or other, otherwise legalizing cannabis, that a majority of those sixty to 70,000 no-knock or quick-knock raids were looking for marijuana. 
And that doesn't surprise me, but it's important that we think about what drives them. And so, uh, John, do you have any experience with this issue that you'd like to share? I fortunately never had any direct experience with a no-knock warrant. I many, many, many times assisted law enforcement officers when I was a prosecutor meeting with the judge and um, assisted them in getting the warrant that they needed to do a search and seizure of a home, but never a no-knock warrant. I, I do have, you know, ultimately knowledge of no-knock warrants and what they are and the history of them and I'm capable of talking on that. And, you know, the, the funny thing about the no-knock warrants is when they were originally created, I think they were originally created back, I think, in the, like the 60s or the 70s, and then they came back in the 80s, like you discussed. But the original staff member or the uh, individual that was uh, a clerk in the, the Congress that helped draft the no-knock warrant law, he considers it one of the worst things he's ever done in his career or one of the biggest mistakes of his career because of what has occurred with it. And I, I think to ultimately tie into your, your point of, I'm not a gun owner. I don't have a concealed carry weapons permit or anything along those lines. But I would say if someone burst in my door unannounced, I would be doing everything within my physical power to protect my family. Absolutely. And you're not going to stop and ask for a badge. I mean, I, it, they're blasting through the door and he's, you know, he's in your waiting room. And that's what a lot of the data has shown is that that's one of the problems is that Regardless if there's a quote-unquote criminal on the other side of that door, they react differently when someone's just bursting in their door. They may assume it's a, I don't know, a rival gang or someone... Well, if you're a drug dealer, you might actually believe that it's a rival gang coming in to take your drugs. Yes. And, and so when you start firing, those bullets are not going to stay within the perimeter of that apartment, they can. If you're in an apartment, you could end up shooting through a wall and killing someone next door. They, ooh. Well, I would argue it even makes it more dangerous for law enforcement at that point. A no-knock warrant does, and I mean the the idea is, I guess, to the element of surprise to preserve evidence, and also, oh, we're going to get a bad guy, and we need to surprise that bad guy. But I think that 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 the second logic, and this is my opinion, but I think the second logic that we need to surprise this bad guy, I, I just think that falls flat. I, I think ultimately. If they're really that bad of a person and they're a violent individual, you know, they're going to be violent regardless of how you approach that home. Um, I, I just don't see a real viable place for for no knock warrants. You know, obviously, there's going to be people that disagree and there's probably strong sectors of the law enforcement and prosecutor community that disagree with that opinion. But I, I think the data is it goes to the whole argument. If one individual or one Brianna Taylor is injured, that's one too many. This is not something that ultimately, I think, the benefit outweighs the risk. And I think the risk of losing one innocent life because of something like that is too great of a risk for something such as a no-knock warrant, especially if the main argument is to preserve evidence. The evidence itself is not nearly as important as an innocent human life. And I think that gets lost sometimes. And, and but here and then when we get to the no knock warrant issue, you know, the argument that's been laid out by a lot of individuals is that without no knock warrants, it will reduce the their ability to police uh, illegal drug sales or whatever else that they're doing. But the interesting thing about that is, is that 
many uh, dealing with the chokehold issue first, there are lots of communities. I mentioned Los Angeles, but also for in, in our own community, doesn't St. Pete actually outlaw chokeholds? They do. Yes. So, I mean, I, I think to jump on your argument that chokeholds are a necessary part of policing, I think there, as we've discussed in the past, there's plenty of large law enforcement agencies throughout the United States that seem to do a very effective job policing their communities without the yep, without right. the use of chokeholds. So right. there's many, 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 I'm sure, besides just Los Angeles and St. Pete that use or have outlawed the use of chokeholds in their policing. Well, I want to say the same thing about no-knock warrants. You, the no-knock warrants are illegal in Oregon. You know, Oregon uh, considered pretty liberal. Uh, but it also turns out that Florida outlaws no-knock warrants. And so the 13 states have laws specifically, explicitly permitting them, and the remaining states uh, apparently leave it up to the judge's discretion who's signing the warrant. And again, I think it's this idea of, you. If I think if you give appropriate boundaries to law enforcement, you make them clear and you have an objective. If the objective is to go in and grab the bad guy and contain them so that you can gather evidence and then take them back to jail or wherever you're going to contain them, versus we're just going to let you surround this apartment complex, blow through the door, grab whoever you want. Uh, there's tons of video content about no-knock warrants. Uh, there's a really bad example of one that occurred in Columbia, Missouri, where the they blow through the front door. They're looking for a guy who they thought had sold a half ounce of marijuana. And when they're there, of course, they encounter his dog that happened to be a pit bull. So we know what happened to the pit bull. They shot the dog and there really was no reason. They had already contained the entire environment there and the dog was not menacing. They just thought it could be, so they just shot it. And it's, so then you get back to this idea of what expectations do you have as a community? What expectation do you have that, what that community is gonna feel about local law enforcement if they're doing these kinds of things. I mean, don't you believe that policing is also about deterrence and the presence of the police without them being the enemy or menacing back as much as they are working with the community to give a sense of control, a sense of safety, but at the same time, not treat the people as though they're all because they happen to be African-American or some other color, that they're, they're criminals. Protect and serve. That's what they're saying. And I believe that's that's, that's what I say. I know that all police officers want to protect and serve. I'm going to say everybody who has that job wants to protect their community. It's just what do they believe is necessary to accomplish that. All right. So let's let's move to that. Well, when we talk about solutions, we talked about increased use of body cameras. Uh, We've talked about increase clarity on use of physical restraints associated with individuals and the idea that lots of states regulate this no use of no knock or quick knock warrants in a way and at the same time with those rules the clarity of those rules 
law enforcement is able to be effective, but at the same time, serve and protect the individuals who might be bystanders. John, what other things would you like to see out there in terms of uh, rules or conversations we need to have so that we can make this issue shrink? Well, I think everything goes back to education and awareness and to have an understanding of what's going on and what really is going on and how one's actions may impact an individual community and then the community as a whole. So I, I think a lot of it, you know, one of the ways, you know, if something is systemic, you can't make Band-Aid fixes to fix a systemic problem. So sometimes things need to be implemented from the ground up. I, I, you know, ultimately changes in culture, changes in ultimately the perception of what the job is and what is supposed to be done. I'm not going to claim that I ever was a law enforcement officer because I was not. I was just a prosecutor, but that had a lot of involvement with the law enforcement community. But I think a lot of it, to, to like I said, to fix a systemic problem, I think there has to be changes from the ground up. You can't just fix this or fix that and expect the problem to go away. Um, so I think a lot of it goes back to education, listening to community members. What are their concerns? What are their problems? What are changes that they'd like to see implemented? Involvement in the African-American community and listen to what their complaints are. Listen to what their problems are and take steps to implement changes to help this systemic problem. Uh, to say that I have a golden answer that's going to fix a problem would be ultimately i would consider myself naive if i could if i thought i could fix something that's systemic but i think you have to start from the ground up and i'm not saying get rid of the police departments but i'm saying changes in culture can have a significant and profound impact on the way uh institutions work and the way institutions serve their communities and i think the best way to start that is by listening and by getting educated and knowing what the problems are and then coming up with real world solutions to them, not just sound bites, not just talk, not just ultimately saying, putting out a statement that XYZ community is against XYZ action. Actually, as they say, putting your money where your mouth is and doing something about it and trying to resolve the problem. And this is a complicated problem. I mean, to sit here and say that, you know, my experiences as a prosecutor could come up with solutions to this problem alone. No way. I think you have to bring all members of this this very, very diverse and complex system together. You have to bring together members of law enforcement. You have to bring together members of politics. You have to bring together members of the community. You have to bring together attorneys and prosecutors and public defenders and criminal defense attorneys. You need to bring together individuals that are have broken the law that were have been part of the system and talk about their interactions and why they thought they were wronged and why they have the positions that they have so people can learn and grow from this and 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 make real changes so i i, I mean i know that's a, a very nebulous answer and not a concrete no, answer to the question no, but right. but I I, so. I think that's where it starts. I think that's where it starts. And then with those things, you can then come up with real world ideas. And if you come up with a real world idea and it doesn't work, 
you try it you try yeah. again that's right. you keep trying until you get it right so we don't yeah. we're, we're yeah. americans we don't give up we we continue to fight we continue to try and make change i mean i feel like i, I know this sounds very cliche and patriotic but we are the land of the free the home of the brave i mean we're here to do what we think is right and ultimately try and make things better for everyone everyone right. so I, I i think that's in my opinion i think that's where you start and then build from there sure i i appreciate those comments john i i think you're talking about from the bottom up uh this is a kind of a good i guess uh kind of time to take some conclusion about some observations here but you know you hear stories you know about people who are protesting the black lives matter movement using expressions like all lives matter but uh, to me it's that that i mean i i think people should protest they should express themselves they should speak in any way they should i i think if people want to have counter protests to the black lives matter and call it all lives matter or blue lives matter okay but those are not mutually exclusive the idea of all lives matter is somehow the black lives want to be more important i just don't know how you can make that argument when you can make a list of the number of people of color that have been that have encountered police officers who were murdered for unreasonable reasons you know you see videos of a man getting out of a car running away uh, because he's got an outstanding warrant and rather than either let the guy go or chase him the cop just shot him in the back or you see stories where uh, you know or you again you see the data what does the information tell us and it tells us that if you even though black people and white people smoke marijuana at about the same rate you're four times more likely to be arrested for cannabis if you are a person of color and of course that that I mean what do you do with that and but this and uh, this idea that people describe uh, defunding the police department. Uh, let's let's not get carried away with what that really means. I don't believe these people are really saying, and they're not, that we're we're just going to have wild west, no law enforcement. We're just going to get rid of the police. What they're saying is the institution of the police department in their community is so corrupt or so racist that you can't regulate out. Uh, impropriety. You can't regulate out bad behavior. You have to sometimes take the whole damn thing down and rebuild it. Slapping them on the hand or making a new rule wouldn't probably make any difference. What you have to do is you have to you have to jolt the system, and that's what I think people are doing. But when it comes to people like me, I'm a property insurance lawyer. John here is a very successful personal injury attorney. My law partner, who've been law, my law partner for many years, very proud to call him that. We're using the information and the experience that we have to represent our current clients. But we also have an obligation as members of the Florida Bar to support the civil liberties of the individuals that find themselves in the crosshairs of the law enforcement that they encounter. And if we can, again, like you said, let's, let's take this one brick at a time. But I think there's, it's time for people to do less talking and a little more listening. John, I really appreciate you taking your time today to sit down with me. Thank you, Ted. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it as well. Good. Well, you're going to continue to hear more from John uh, and unfortunately more from me as well as we go forward. We're going to talk about things that are relevant to our practice, but at the same time, 
we want to talk about things that we can give you our perspectives as lawyers with our ex decades of experience and so you can know what our heart is. I want to end by again acknowledging that today's date is June 19th, which is the celebration date for the elimination of slavery uh, right around the Civil War. Right around the Civil War. And it's a, it's a date that we need to keep our eye on every year. And maybe we use it as a touchstone to take a look at how it is that we are dealing with these issues. And then I think the last thing I, I want to enter is I want to I talk to you, whoever's listening to me, and I want you to think about your own perspective. Don't just talk about the other people, but think about your own experiences, if you, how it is that you inter, interface with the police department. And, you know, it doesn't matter what police officer I talk to. My name is Mr. Corliss to him. That, that's because I'm a middle-aged white guy, I guess. But I know from my own experiences as a, as a child growing up in northwest Missouri that there was a lot of racism in the 60s and 70s that I saw personally. And I know the stories of the things that happened in my community in the decades before I lived there. And they're not positive. They're very negative on the issue of how people of color have been treated. So we hope that these kinds of conversations add light to the situation and give people more information. But if you need more information about any of the things we've been talking about, you can go to our website at www.corlissbarfield.com. Uh, you're also free to email us at service, S-E-R-V-I-C-E, at Corliss Barfield, and we're here for you. You all be safe out there and be well.